Hello, my name is Evie Martin. I'm the lead pastor here at Platwoods Church. Thank you for joining our online community for worship today. Our family vacation this past July found us on the beaches of the Panhandle of Florida. Sandy, shallow, relatively clear waters to a point. Now, I'm not an avid water person. I, I love to look at the ocean. I'm fine on a whale watching boat or an island ferry with sufficient life jackets accessible to all passengers. But being in the ocean, or any large body of water for that matter, is not something for which my soul yearns. It's a little too unknown. But being good Florida tourists, we effectively lulled ourselves into thinking that the shallow waters were a perfectly safe place to relax and play for four days with our small children. On our last day of the trip, however, my husband quietly and nonchalantly decided to show me this photo, which had made the news on day two of our vacation, less than a mile up the shore from our daily swimming spot. It's a hammerhead shark swimming towards a man who is utterly clueless in two feet of water. The good news is, all is well. Neither human nor sea creature was harmed in the incident, but I shall never set foot in the sea again. The sea is big. It is murky. It is uncontrollable. It is chaos. Today, we dive in to the book of Jonah. There are no sharks, of course, and it's certainly no vacation. But something about these two little pages of the Bible in which a man gets thrown into the sea and swallowed by a great fish have captured human imagination and curiosity for millennia. We're drawn to the fantasy of it, but also the reality of it. We understand chaos. We live constantly with the unknown. And we're all too familiar with finding ourselves in over our heads. It may be an old, old story, but it's one that has never grown old. Jonah is, as every good story is, multi-layered. There is something here for everyone. We tell it to our children as soon as they are old enough to chew on a board book. As adults, we find the humor in Jonah's ongoing reluctance because we see the same in ourselves. Scholars and preachers and teachers in thousands of years have never run out of revelation and discovery in this masterful story in the middle of our collection of minor prophets in the Bible. We find in Jonah themes of God's sovereignty, God's mercy, God's provision. It is a story God's people needed then and it's a story we need now. Over the next few weeks, we will walk through the book of Jonah, one chapter at a time, and I hope you'll read the story for yourself. Read the words that are really there on the page and pay attention to what's not there too. Over the centuries, so much of Jonah's story has been retold or produced or summarized that we've actually filled in gaps in the narrative with things that aren't really there or we've taken out the parts that make us uncomfortable and don't fit nicely into a children's book, at least not one that will sell well. Before we start with chapter one today, I want to rewind to a sermon that I preached almost two months ago now. It was a sermon in which I attempted to answer the question that you all chose, is everything in the Bible true? 
I argued for a change in the question as we approach our scriptures, and I encouraged us to ask instead, how is what I'm reading in the Bible true? We talked about the different ways that we experience truth, the importance of knowing what genre it is that we are reading, examining the differences and the similarities between our context now with the context in which something was written. So now, here, in the book of Jonah, we have a textbook opportunity to do some of that work together. Jonah is a classic example of a Bible story that has wrought countless debates and arguments over whether it is geographically or historically or biologically accurate. Is it true in a factual, physically observable way? Or is there a different kind of truth that is a theological point the author is trying to make by using story and exaggeration and humor? Let's look first at what it is that we're reading. Jonah is categorized in our Bible with the minor prophets. We find him sandwiched in the middle of short little books like Joel, Obadiah, Nahum, Habakkuk. Jonah is a prophet, but when we compare his books to all of the other minor prophets, it's quite different. It doesn't follow the same patterns at all. Other prophets spend most of their time uttering the words of the Lord, given to them for the people. The emphasis is not on the prophets themselves, but on the message that God gives to the people. In Jonah, though, we only hear the Lord's words four times. By contrast, Jonah is a narrative. It's telling us a story, a story about Jonah, a story about the people of Nineveh, and because it is in story form, scholars most commonly categorize it as a satirical parable or didactic fiction. Both of these mean it's a narrative form, using humor and irony to teach us a theological point. Does that mean that you can't believe that a giant fish literally swallowed Jonah and swam around for three days and nights before vomiting him up on the beach? No. If it's important for you to believe that, you absolutely can. It just means that that's not the main point the writer 2,500 years ago was trying to make. How is Jonah true? Jonah is true in a way that teaches us something about God and something about ourselves that's much bigger than a giant fish. I'll give just a little more context here before we go straight into the text. When was Jonah written and when was it set? Those are two different questions, but they matter for our bigger picture. No one knows with certainty when Jonah was written down, but scholars have narrowed it to sometime between the years 200 and 500 BCE. We know that it was after the Israelites had gone into exile in Babylon and then returned back home around 539. And that will be important to remember later on down the road. But it was also before 180, because we find it referenced in other ancient Near Eastern texts around that time. The setting of Jonah, however, is much earlier than that. The Israelites might have been reading or hearing this story after their exile in Babylon, in a time when they have come home to a place that no longer looks like home. But the story is hearkening back to an earlier time in their history and a memory under the power of a different empire. 
Jonah seems to be set a few hundred years prior when the Neo-Assyrians were in power. They had conquered the southern kingdom of Judah, and Jonah is referenced as a prophet from the northern kingdom of Israel, which had not yet fallen to the Assyrians. So effectively, God is sending him into enemy territory, into the seat of power of the empire before Israel itself falls to their advance. Okay, now we could spend this entire series on the really nerdy biblical history stuff, but nap time isn't until after church. If you are interested in the nerdy stuff, you can check out the Bible for Normal People podcast. They have a three-episode series just on the book of Jonah that I think you'll really like. You can find that link on our worship page. But I think most of us are here for the story. So let's begin. Jonah chapter 1. The Lord's word came to Jonah, Amittai's son. Get up and go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their evil has come to my attention. So Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord. This is our first indicator that this book is going to take us for a ride. It begins like other prophetic books. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Sounds like a normal prophet to me. God gives the command, get up and go. Jonah gets up and goes in the opposite direction. This is intended to be a laugh out loud moment. Early readers and hearers would have thought that this was hilarious. We're assuming that Jonah is somewhere in the Israel-Judah area. Nineveh, the HQ of the Neo-Assyrian Empire, was here, several hundred miles away to the east. Now that's no short trip for a man on foot. That's a pretty big ask. But Jonah doesn't go there. He goes even further in the opposite direction to the west. Jonah heads to Tarshish. No one today really knows where Tarshish was, but most scholars agree it was very, very far. There's even a good case to be made that it was as far as modern day Spain. The idea the exaggeration here of just how impossibly far away Tarshish is, is meant to make us laugh at how badly Jonah does not want to go where the Lord has told him to go. And in that moment of humor, we all find ourselves too. Because we either know or we can imagine what it feels like inside when God asks us to do something we do not ever want to do. We understand the instinct to flee the presence of God all the way to Spain. In Jonah's defense, though, this was no small command from the Lord. As I mentioned before, Assyria is the empire in power, and Nineveh is its capital, so to speak. And this isn't just like rolling into Washington, D.C. to go talk to some senators. The Neo-Assyrian empire and army has a pretty gruesome reputation in the archeological record. They were known and feared for particularly violent and torturous treatment of the people they overthrew. Reliefs and artwork from this period depict grotesque acts of torture that I won't even mention here, but it's the kind of stuff that will make your stomach turn. The kind of stuff we would attribute to modern day extremist terrorist cells. 
but such violence was the signature of the whole Neo-Assyrian Empire. To be a lone Israelite sent into the heart of such an empire, that is not a call that I want to get from God. So it makes perfectly good sense that Jonah didn't want to go. So instead, he went down to Joppa and found a ship headed for Tarshish. He paid the fare and went aboard to go with them to Tarshish away from the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, so that there was a great storm on the sea. The ship looked like it might be broken to pieces. Now here in this section, it's harder to see in the English than in the original Hebrew, but once again, we have an exaggerated, dramatic account of what is going on. The Lord hurls the wind upon the sea. The storm is great. The wind is great. Everything is larger than life. In the original Hebrew, the ship is almost personified. It reads more like the ship considered breaking apart. We are intended to know just how over the top this whole situation is. The sailors were terrified and each one cried out to his God. They hurled, there's that word again, they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to make it lighter. Now Jonah had gone down into the hold of the vessel to lie down and was deep in sleep. The ship's officer came to him and said, how can you possibly be sleeping so deeply? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps the God will give some thought to us so that we won't perish. Meanwhile, the sailors said to each other, come on, let's cast lots so that we might learn who is to blame for this evil that's happening to us. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they said to him, tell us, since you're the cause of this evil happening to us, what do you do and where are you from? What's your country and of what people are you? He said to them, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Now this statement here sends the sailors into a tizzy, which we're about to see. And I think it does so because it's one of the main theological claims of the whole book of Jonah. We'll come back to it more than once. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This is a claim of God's sovereignty. God is God over all things and in all places. Jonah knows it. He's the one who said it. And yet, He's doing his darndest to try and escape the very thing he knows to be true. What's shocking to the sailors, most likely, is Jonah's claim that God is the one who made the sea. In ancient religions, it was normal for various gods to lay claim or have dominion over particular places or parts of creation. There were sun gods and moon gods, gods over the land and the sky and the creatures. But there were no water gods. Water, as we said at the beginning, was chaos. Water was ungoverned. Water was unknown and uncontrolled, even by the divine. So for Jonah to claim his God's sovereignty, even over the sea, was shocking to those who heard it. 
And yet at the same time, they could see evidence of it all around them as the waves rolled and tossed them about due to Jonah's flight of rebellion. This claim of God's power over all creation in this story, mysterious, dangerous water included, sends the memory of God's people all the way back to creation when God's spirit hovered over the chaotic waters of the deep and called forth land. And then it sends a beacon of light forward into the New Testament where we encounter the stories of Jesus, both calming the storm and walking on the water. For those Jews in the boat with Jesus, when he spoke a word to the wind and it grew still, there is no doubt This story of Jonah and God's dominion over the water leapt right to the forefront of their minds. Only the God of Israel commands the chaos of the sea. The story goes on. Then the men were terrified and said to him, What have you done? The men knew that Jonah was fleeing from the Lord because he had told them. They said to him, what will we do about you so that the sea will become calm around us? The sea was continuing to rage. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm around you. I know it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. The men rowed to reach dry land, but they couldn't manage it because the sea continued to rage against them. So they called on the Lord saying, please, Lord, don't let us perish on account of this man's life and don't blame us for innocent blood. You are the Lord. Whatever you want, you can do. Then they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased its raging. The men worshiped the Lord with a profound reverence. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made solemn promises. Well, so far, Jonah's track record as a prophet is looking really good. Aside from his complete and utter disobedience of the Lord's command and getting himself hurled into the sea, he has managed to convert an entire boatload of sailors to worship the one true God of Israel. He didn't even have to try. He just went and slept in the bottom of the boat. That has literally never worked in my 13 years of ministry. To be fair, I haven't specifically tried. But right here in the first chapter, and we'll see it again later in chapter three, we see clearly, and even with a tad of humor, that the outsiders, the pagans, if you will, those who don't even know who God is, are much easier to convert than the man who is God's own prophet. God's own recruit becomes God's antagonist. Surely this is never true of us. Surely, we are never the ones God has to go to great lengths to convince. Surely, once we're already following God, we never become obstinate and ignorant about the work God is doing right around us and asking us to do, even if it's hard. Surely. I don't think this story would be here if we ourselves never became antagonists in our own story with God. But there's another interesting thing going on in this chapter. Jonah's physical movement in this opening scene invites some natural questions for us. When we pay attention to Jonah's direction and distance, it is very clear that he is trying to go away from 
and very far from God. We saw it very clearly with the map and the entire Mediterranean Sea between Joppa and Tarshish. But there's another movement happening here too. We'll see it continue next week in chapter two. Did you notice the consistency of the direction Jonah is going? At the very beginning of the chapter, we hear the Lord say, get up and go. Up is the direction of the command. And then, with almost exaggerated repetition, Jonah begins to go down and down and down. He goes down to Joppa, then down to the boat in the port, then down even into the very bottom recesses of that boat, the text says, and every step on his escape route, he's spiraling down farther and farther from what the Lord has commanded. Ultimately, the chapter ends with one more downward motion being hurled right into the sea itself. Now, I don't know if Jonah is making these intentional downward decisions, but I suspect the author is, inviting us to feel the distance and the separation that comes with each movement down and away from God. I think many of us know what that feels like when gravity takes over in a spiritual sense. For some of us, there's a hard thing that God is nudging us to do. It's a difficult conversation with someone we struggle to love. It's a call to step into leadership or ministry. It's a gnawing in the pit of your stomach about sharing your story with someone who's hurting. It's a nudge to invest your time and your money with the poor. It's a mandate to love your enemy. I, I can't tell you what your nudge is in your hearts. You have to feel it. But if you've felt it, and if you've turned away from it, headed toward Tarshish, you know what it feels like then to start spiraling down away from God. You are not lost from God. Your heart is just trying to put distance there because you are afraid of what God has asked of you. It might be a really, really hard thing that you don't even believe is right, just like Jonah couldn't believe that he should be headed into the terror of Nineveh. And so you find yourself feeling lethargic in your faith. You're not sure what God is up to in and around you, and some days you don't really care. You'd be fine sleeping in the bottom of a boat. And I don't say any of this as judgment. It's just real. It's simply what happens when we run in the opposite direction from where we think God wants us to go. I've been there. You may have been there. You may be there right now. I think as we begin this series, this first chapter of Jonah is inviting us simply to locate ourselves, figure out where we are, in relation to God and what God asks of us. Chapter one ends with Jonah hurtling into the waves. That feels pretty ominous. But remember that even Jonah himself has already claimed that the Lord is the Lord of the sea. The chaos of the waves are not void of God's presence and control. 
We'll talk more about that next week. But where are we in our journey with God? What direction are we facing? Are we running toward God these days or are we actively running away? Has God asked us to turn in a direction that we are convinced is horrible, in a direction that we can't possibly imagine is what God really wants? Is God turning us toward a people we are convinced are unforgivable and we just can't stand it? What direction are we going? Are we spiraling down and away? If that is true for you, you are not alone. And it is good and faithful work just to name it and recognize it today and in the days ahead. Because as we're going to find out, even in our downward spirals, we are closer to God than we might ever imagine. I worship the Lord, Jonah said, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Let us pray. Lord, you are good, and your mercy endures forever. Out of the chaos of the water, you brought forth dry land. You spoke calm. There is no realm outside of your reach. Remind us of this truth when our path is turned in the opposite direction from you. When our reluctance or our inaction draws us downward, weighing us down, slowing us down, help us not to deny that we are avoiding you. Give us the courage to name it. And still, in the midst of it, to claim the truth that we know, we are still not outside the reaches of your love. Turn us around and set our feet on the path you want us to take. In the name of the one whose word calms the raging seas around us. Amen.